Let me begin with a bit of a silly illustration. Who do you think the strongest man or strongest person in the room is here in this place? And let's just consider, everybody's looking around. (laughs) Uh, Let's just consider the lifting exercise called the squat. You know, you put the, the rack of weights on your shoulders, you go down, you go up. If your legs aren't strong enough, you break. Um, I think I know who the strongest person is in the room, <laughs> but I won't say, I won't name him, except that his name rhymes with Binny. <laughs> you know, it's nice to know that we don't know who this person is. Maybe. <laughs> but now that I got you all thinking about it, what if this person wanted to be known? In fact, he wanted to boast in his strength, and he was so determined that everyone bow to his power, so much so that he went on to publish exactly how much he could squat, and he just posted it all around the church with his face. He wore t-shirts with the amount of weight that he could squat, and not only that, every time uh, he walked into the room, he demanded that everyone here in the congregation get up and bow to him, give him glory, ascribe him glory for possessing that strength. He is the strongest man in the room, isn't he? But yet there would still be something seriously wrong and even ugly about someone who did something like that. So much so that if Binny weren't already married, he would have a difficult time finding a wife because his pride would be such a turnoff. There's a lot of reasons why this is so ugly if man does this. Maybe the greatest reason why it's so ugly is because we as Christians believe that whatever strength we have, whether great or small, and whether it be physical or intellectual, Those strengths have been given to us by God. Not so that we can brag about it, but so that we can steward it. And so demanding people give us glory for something that doesn't come from us or does not even belong to us ultimately fails to recognize that we are dependent creatures. Doesn't recognize that the glory doesn't belong to us, but belongs always to another. But if you are the independent creator God, always good, who is always just, who is always holy, the one who always loves all of those things and celebrates those things, the right for glory is deserved and even demanded. And there is no ugliness at all if God were to do that. And in fact, he does do this. Because if you are God, all of a sudden, doing those things for your own glory is to desire goodness. It is, in fact, to desire justice, to desire holiness, to desire love and mercy. And so, in effort to demand other people would worship and glorify Him, is simply to demand that people love goodness, holiness, justice, love, mercy, steadfast love. We could just go on and on and on. Friends, the Bible says that this is God. This is what God does. There's nothing in Him that is derived from anything else. It just he, he, He's the one, he's the one who, who, who generates goodness. He is the definition of goodness. He is self-existent. He is self-sufficient. He is good. And he is righteous. And when you are always perfect and good and righteous, for him to demand glory once again is never ugly, bad, or never selfish. All glory 
and honor belongs to God, just as Oscar has already prayed. And in fact, he deserves all the glory. But not only does God deserve all the glory, God gets all the glory. This is what we see in today's passage found in, in Exodus chapters 13, verse 17 to 15, 21. I invite you to turn there with me now. And it can be found on page 55 if you're using one of those black Bibles there in front of you on the backs of the pews. The book of Exodus is all about God forming a people for himself in holiness as he rescues them from slavery under Egypt. And in working this deliverance for his people, God gets all the glory. The story of God's mighty works against Pharaoh and his army has such great significance for Israel and should have great significance for us today, his church today. And friends, references of the Exodus is just found throughout Scripture, particularly what he does to Pharaoh. And it is a reminder, as we look at this today, that our God is an awesome, truly awesome God. The events of the Exodus was nothing less than a war between the greatest ruler on earth at the time, the greatest superpower on earth, who himself uh, was seen to be divine. So you have him, Pharaoh, turning up with all of his gods, the gods of the people. They were a polytheistic people. And then you have the sovereign king of heaven, the only God. And this is a war between these two. And as we read Exodus, the sovereign omnipotence of God is so much more highlighted by the fact that that everyone else in the story just simply does not want to believe in him or struggles to believe in him. Or, ironically, struggles to doubt their own power. Pharaoh, for example, who was seen once again to be God, he refuses to bend the knee. We're going to look at that a little bit later. Moses, even though he is called by the sovereign God to lead his, uh, God's people out of Israel, he struggles to believe in the Lord as he thinks everything relies on himself and his own power. And so he is seen in many different ways cowering there in the corner. And then you've got the people of Israel who struggle so hard to listen to the Lord because of their suffering. So their immediate situation clouds their ability to lay hold of God's promises. The question then is, who will rescue them? Pharaoh's not going to let up. Moses is cowering. And then Israel themselves, yeah, they struggle to believe. Last week, we saw that the time had finally arrived. God had promised that he would give his people their own land. And he had determined that the time was now, and in a showdown between the supposed divine and the truly divine, the Lord brings mighty deeds against the Pharaoh in the ten plagues. Uh, maybe you're thinking about the Ten Commandments, maybe you're thinking about, uh, once again, the Prince of Egypt. But here in Scripture, we see what God is doing, bringing judgment against Pharaoh. And just as Pharaoh had asked, so the Lord proved that he alone is the sovereign one, showing power over the created things and even power over his created people. In, verse tw in chapter 12, verse 50, just listen. It says there, all the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Ten plagues come. God brings his people out. There's deliverance. You know, on, on a personal level, just imagine the awe of the people having just witnessed God's work, working wonders right before their eyes and even bringing judgment on those who opposed them and enslaved them. And then on a group level, think of all of Israel, and their uh, scholars say that there are probably uh, over a million people at least. It would have been certainly a triumphant time as they left Egypt. You can go ahead and look at our verse there, chapter 13, verses 17 to 21. Just go ahead and scan those verses. 
Remember, God here is fulfilling his promises to Abraham that he would make Abraham's descendants into a multitude of people. And there they are, a multitude. God had promised that he would bring them into their own land, and that's what he's doing. And then, of course, the third promise to Abraham that he gave there is is, uh, eventually he would make them into a blessing to the world through Jesus Christ. And as they see God work, his mighty works, they had a physical reminder of the fact that God fulfills his promises. They had Joseph's bones. In Genesis chapter 50, there Joseph promised, as his descendants promised him, that they would, in fact, bring his bones out from Egypt and to the promised land. And that's a symbol saying that my hope is with God and his promises. And so here in chapter 13, our section here, we have Moses bringing up the bones out of Egypt, going into the promised land. But it wasn't the only physical reminder that they had, that God was with them. It says there in 1321, they had a pillar of cloud by day to give them cover and shade. They're wandering in the desert. And then a pillar of fire by night to give them the way forward. And it says that this divine protection did not depart from before the people. I'm not quite sure what this looked like. If you're thinking of Cecil B. DeMille's uh, you know, depiction there, you have like the cheesy effects of the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. But nevertheless, even though we don't know what exactly it looked like, we know that the angel of the Lord was with them, guiding them to the promised land. Divine protection. And as we know, we know that the story is not complete. The story is not over. God, in fact, is not done with Pharaoh. And this brings us to point number one. If you're taking notes here, this brings us to point number one. God is going to get glory over Pharaoh. God gets glory over Pharaoh. There is a fascinating turn of events here in chapter 14. And it's it's, uh, something that demands our attention. You notice the Lord's plan for his people. I'm going to ask you to just, you know, look at, stick your faces in the Bible there so we can see what exactly is going on. God leads the people south, not north, because if they went north directly into the promised land, they would face uh, 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 those who would, who would want to destroy him, and, and God knows they're not ready for battle yet. So he leads them south, down towards uh, the gulf there, and the Red Sea. The Lord tells Moses to encamp between a city and the sea, and the reason here there is found in 14.3, look there, to give the appearance to Egypt that they are aimlessly sort of wandering in the land like cows. You know, they don't exactly know where to go. They don't know how to get out of the desert. And Pharaoh's going to think that they are trapped. And God himself wants Moses to give the appearance to Egypt that they are sitting ducks. Verse 4, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will persecute them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. You see how specific God is and how explicit God is? I will get glory over Pharaoh. And we have to be mindful of what Pharaoh had done. You know, a reminder. Uh, while the people of God lived to worship and serve Yahweh, Pharaoh was making them serve him. In chapter 1, we saw that Pharaoh enslaves the people of God. The people of Israel were to benefit his kingdom, and so he makes them, turns them into slaves. And then it gets worse, an effort to control the Hebrew population from from the boys rising, rising up to be men and then fighting against him. He then commands the murder of all Hebrew male babies. And we assume that it was to some degree successful. You see how these flies in the face of God? The king of heaven wants his people to worship and serve him, but the king of Egypt 
forces the people of God to serve himself. The king of heaven is determined to grow his people into multitude, but the king of Egypt personally sees to it through his own efforts and then through national policy to reduce the Hebrew people to nothing. Pharaoh's dismissive of God. He is hostile towards him. And he damns himself in chapter 5, verse 2. Go and flip over there. Chapter 5, verse 2. Moses and Aaron go to him and deliver the decree of the sovereign king. And look how Pharaoh responds. He says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? I do not know him. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. So you have in the mind of himself one divine king searching for another divine king in his iPhone address book saying, I don't know who this guy is. And moreover, I have my own plans. Here Pharaoh's heart is too full for his own will and he is damned when he discards gods. Pharaoh has become a god unto himself. This is the nature of sin that we see going on in Genesis chapter 3 where Adam and Eve decide to redraw God's will for themselves. And in so doing, in effect, they become gods unto themselves. And so they rebel against the one and only true God. But God alone, we know that God alone deserves all the glory. And here he's going to get glory over Pharaoh. We know that this conflict between this one and only sovereign king and the greatest earthly king is going to come to a climax here in the upcoming events in order that God would make Pharaoh know that there is no God but God alone. If you look oh, back at uh, chapter 13 there, or sorry, chapter 14, you look at verses 5 to 9, we see here that God's plan actually works. Like a grand master of strategy, God lays the bait for Pharaoh that he can't refuse. And God tells the Israelite camp to camp to, with their backs towards the sea, right? Nowhere to go over there because it's a sea. And Pharaoh... In his pride, in his greed, in his defiance of Yahweh, the great I am, he goes on and tries to recapture them. Verse 5, Pharaoh changes his mind like, what are we doing? Why don't we enslave them? We're going to lose out you know, on our economy. And so with all his sovereign authority, look there, verse 6, with all his earthly power, it says there, the emphasis is on what he does. He made ready his chariots and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers all over all of them. So you imagine the greatest earthly power military known to man is marshaled to enslave you and to kill you. They are ravenous, voracious wolves, whoring after dominance and strength and power and wealth and stop at nothing to attain it. And so they pursue here the Hebrew people. But you have this interjection there in verse 8. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel. The way that this passage reads, there is no doubt that God is accomplishing his will. He is hardening Pharaoh's heart like a master strategist with with all of his wisdom and with perfect execution. And not only does the Lord know the weaknesses and sins of those who oppose him, Pharaoh right here is the example, but he even uses their their sin to accomplish his plan. So here God is setting up to display his power to judge Pharaoh. Think about a basketball player, for example, this master strategist, throwing up a head fake to a jittery defender. The defender goes for it, and the basketball player steps back hits the three, and wins. Think of a grandmaster chess player who sets the bait 
to distract his opponent in the immediate, what he can see with his eyes, but to set up the checkmate of a lifetime. This is God knowing the heart of Pharaoh and then setting the bait to distract him as he accomplishes his own plan to show that he alone is the Lord. You know, some people find this troubling to see God hardening Pharaoh's heart. You know, it touches on one of the greatest mysteries here of Scripture where you have divine sovereignty and human responsibility in the same passage. That God is absolutely sovereign over everything. We know from Genesis, he speaks and things are created. But then we see that here that people are responsible. So you look at, you see God's sovereignty, right? The Lord is the one who hardens and he has a future purpose in hardening. So turn back to chapter 4, verse 21. Chapter 4, verse 21. You see God's sovereignty. The Lord is the one who hardens. 421, it says there, and the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart. And then here's the purpose so that he will not let the people go. That's God's sovereignty. But then you also have human responsibility. So Pharaoh hardens his own heart and he is guilty of sin, right? His desires are 100% into this. Pharaoh is doing this 100%. This is why the Lord says in 10.3, you can turn over there, 10.3, he says there, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? So Pharaoh is not excused one bit for his sins of enslaving God's people, killing God's people, or opposing God in pride and rebellion. He is not excused for this. But the weight of his sin is fully on him. And then you see them working together. So turn over to chapter 9, verses 34 to 10.1. You see God's sovereignty and human responsibility together in the same passage. They are seen to be concurrent concurrent or working together look there at 34 934 but when pharaoh saw that the rain and hail this is after a plague when pharaoh had saw that the rain and hail and the thunder had ceased he sinned yet again and hardened his heart he and his servants so the heart of pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people of israel go just as the lord had spoken through moses 10 1 then the lord said to moses go into pharaoh for i have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants that I might show these signs of mine among them. Friends, I do not claim to understand all the intricacies of how God works, his sovereignty and human responsibility, nor do I claim to understand all the implications that stem from them. But as Christians who submit to God's word, we want to think, we need to think really carefully, as carefully as we can about this, and then think, uh, draw our conclusions that are based from the Bible, the Word of God. And even where there is tension here, divine sovereignty, human responsibility, where there is tension, uh, the attention that God has chosen to not fully explain, it is our responsibility in our thoughts and as we conceive of how we understand the Lord and how He works, it's on us to preserve that tension. It just reflects the truth as Deuteronomy 29.29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord. There are secret things that God has chosen not to reveal to us. And it says in Deuteronomy 29.29 that the revealed things, those things we are responsible for. And we wrestle with this. I've been wrestling with this on Thursday, on Friday. I was wrestling with it yesterday. Yesterday I went to this picnic, this birthday party, and I'm sure people could tell that I was thinking about something. 
that's what happens. You you wrestle with these things. You stick your face in the text, your nose in the text, as John Piper says, and you say, what does the Bible say? Is God evil? Never evil. Responsibility of sin is never put on God's shoulders. Even though we see in the cross, for example, that God stands behind evil even, willing the crucifixion and the murder of his very own son. But yet God is never said to be sinful or evil. And he says, look, you cannot claim that God is unjust in what he does. Okay, so I, I root myself in that text. And I know that God is good. He is sovereign. He is loving to his people. And then I go over here and say, okay, well, gosh, I really want to adapt a fatalistic mindset. and think, forget it. Everything's pointless because God has is is already ordained everything. But then I think, no, actually. You turn over to scripture. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, he actually calls his, the people that he's reaching out to to repent of their sins and to believe. And so responsibility is placed on us. And once again, you see this on the cross. In Acts chapter 2, it says that, that God had ordained that Herod and the people, the Jews there, and even the Romans would gather together to fulfill what his plan had, he had ordained. And then in, 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 the next, in the following verses there, you have the apostles standing up and saying, repent of your sins and you will be saved. God is sovereign, but you have the apostles saying, look, you guys really have sinned. Now repent of them. So you see here this... God's sovereignty and human responsibility, they are concurrent. They work together. And we need to wrestle with this and even preserve the tension that we see. If you want to talk more about that, I can give you things to read and passages to study. And it shows, just like Exodus does, God's sovereignty and human responsibility working together. Well, for the people of Israel and for us today, we read this and we are to be encouraged the most powerful earthly king, no matter how much power he hurls towards the people of God, he still is in the hands of the king of heaven, accountable finally to the Lord. How encouraging that must have been for the, those who are suffering, watching their babies float down the Nile because of the policies of Pharaoh who opposes God. But not only is God setting up for a display of his sovereign authority to judge He's also setting up things to display his sovereign power to deliver. We're still under point one. We're just simply walking through the passage using, the, using these points to just generally guide us. Where Pharaoh's pride and hostility is the stage where God's power to judge is proven, Israel's fear and doubt is the stage where God's power to deliver is proven. Look at verse 10 in, verse four, in chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 10. It says that when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And then in their fear, they grumbled. Look there at 11 and 12. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Here, I think our tendency is to be kind of hard on the Egyptians, but we know little itty-bitty stresses that stress us out completely, that paralyze us, that cause us to lose faith. And here, the Israelites have a sea behind them. They don't know how they're going to get through yet. And in front of them, they have all of Egypt's might coming towards them. You see dust clouds kicking up as Pharaoh chases after them, seeking to enslave them any, uh, even more. 
They too think that there is no way out. They can't fight them. They are not equipped for battle. I mean, it says in thirteen, chapter 13 that they are equipped for battle, but that's more talking about how they are arranged as a people. They're not talking about weapons of warfare. They have no weapons of warfare. Using human judgment, they can't go through the Red Sea, and so they give in to fear. They basically say, look, if we wanted to die, we could have done that properly over there. At least they have graves. And you, you are our idiot leader. Didn't we tell you to stop bothering us with your land of milk and honey? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But again, the people's fear and doubt is the stage where God's power to deliver will be proven. And as one has said, man's extremity is God's opportunity. Man's extremity is God's opportunity. For the people of Israel, the heat of the situation, you know, the stressors, Pharaoh's army is obviously chasing them. The reality is, is they could not save themselves. This gives birth to not the fruit of faith, but instead the thorns of unbelief, of fear, of grumbling, blaming. And they want to return to Pharaoh. They want to be ruled by this one who opposes God. But God in his kindness and love gives his people a rallying cry. It says in there, verse 13, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. Now we who know what happens, you know, we're thinking, yes, we know what's going to happen. Praise God. Of course, it's so much easier said than done to be silent. The rage of Pharaoh's in front of them, the sea behind them, not to mention... Even if they succeed going through the sea and somehow miraculously defeating Pharaoh, you have all the people in the land of Canaan who want to destroy them. They have young children. They have the elderly. They got pregnant ladies with them and there they are trekking through the desert. Yet God calls people, his people, to trust in him. How fitting is that for you today who might be staring something, whether it be a diagnosis of failing health, your plunging stock portfolio. Maybe you fear of, I don't know, some global terrorization. Well then, friends, you understand the position that Israel was in. You understand the extremities that you find yourself in. But friends, by God's grace, we have this example. Man's extremity becomes God's opportunity. Look there in verse 15. You hear, have here God speaking to Moses as Israel's representative once again. He gives a rallying cry and then he says to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea so that the people would go through on dry ground. And he tells them, he says, I will harden the hearts of, Pharaoh, of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh. You remember how Pharaoh, in all of his might, his earthly might that he can muster, he goes and grabs all the strength of his own country. He grabs all of his own chariots, all of his horsemen, and all of his officers. And God here, he just surveys all, all of the weapons of warfare that Egypt can bring to the table. And he says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I will get glory over Pharaoh. And all his hosts, his chariots, his horsemen, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, 
his chariots and his horsemen. Verses 19 to 20, the angel of the Lord and the pillar of cloud, they moved in between the Egyptians and the Israelites. It was a cloud on the side of the Egyptians and a pillar of fire on the side of the Israelites to lead them forward. Look there at verses 21 to 23. I'll go ahead and read those. It says there, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind. So if you get this idea, they are facing uh, east, and the east wind blows this way, so the ocean, the, the sea, sorry, the sea is opening from the far side to the closest side, and it blows all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry land, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left hand. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. See that emphasis there. Pharaoh who called his troops to action, who pursued the people of Israel, pursues them into the Red Sea with all of his horses, all of his chariots, all of his horsemen. And we know that the Lord is working. Look there in verse 2, oh sorry, 24. You see this emphasis here of God's power, his sovereign authority here. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw them in, threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. You have, you have the Egyptians, all of them, going into the sea, pursuing all of Israel, and you have God dismantling their powerful chariots. Just, it literally reads like, taking off the wheels of the chariots, so that they drove heavily. And what do they themselves profess? They profess the exact same thing that God has desired to teach Israel and Egypt and Moses. Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them, Against the Egyptians. So there you see God's deliverance proving to Egypt that He alone is the I Am, the great I Am that is Yahweh here. If you notice, you see the emphasis. Look there in verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, Moses obeys, and then he, the Lord moves behind and He protects. And then you look there in 21, it says, The Lord drove the sea. And then, okay, so what happens afterward? Look there in 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, here again, look at this emphasis, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. The conclusion here, but the people of the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. This is all the work of the Lord. I am Yahweh. Friends, there's not a shadow of a doubt that the sovereign one is the true king over all, and he shows this. He proves his sovereignty, his sovereign authority to Pharaoh. And just as Pharaoh in all his earthly might commanded his people to be cast, sorry, commanded his people to cast the Hebrew babies into the waters, so the Lord returns Pharaoh's own sin upon his head. 
and cast the waters upon Pharaoh and all his officers. Look at the rousing account there, encouraging account there in 30 to 31. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. And so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. In this beautiful poetic language here, this parallelism, he compares the hand of Pharaoh to the hand of God. And you have the Israelites just watching and seeing that the Lord fights for them. Look there again. It says there in 30, Israel saw, right? They saw. What did they see? The hand of the Egyptians. The hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw Egypt dead on the seashore. And then it says Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. The, the root word of power there, it comes from hand. So you have the hand of the Egyptians is mighty no longer over the people of God. But the hand of God is mighty forevermore. Christians, as we come away from reading the account of the Exodus, you know, we are reminded too that if we are to be saved from our sins, it requires nothing less than God's saving, sovereign grace. Just think about a moment for God, about God's power to judge and God's power to save. Power to judge against Pharaoh and the Egyptians, but power to save Israel. We know from Scripture, as we think about salvation from sin, we know from Scripture that there is none righteous before God, as the book of Romans says. We know that we have all inherited a sin nature, and then we actually also transgress God's law, and we earn for ourselves just condemnation and the justice and righteousness of God, he has the right to judge us. So the question is, if we are all underneath the, the power of sin and actually sin against God, why then does God move to save some in power and then to judge others in his justice? This is one of the questions that was mind-boggling for me last night. Here God's dealings with the people of Israel are an example to us. Why does God move in power to judge the Egyptians, but then move in power to save the people of Israel? Did God choose the people of Israel because they had earned it? And so he, res he responds to them and then saves them because they are good in and of themselves. There's something inherent in them or beautiful in them or their power in them that God moves to save them. The answer is no. Turn over to your right. Turn over to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 7. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 7. Here, this is already after the people of Israel have left Egypt and now they're on the brink of the promised land and Moses is giving them sermons and he's reminding them of everything that God had done for them. Deuteronomy 7, chapter 7, verse 7. Moses reminds them, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. So then the question is, okay, if God sets his love upon a people, not because of my own beauty, or not because I'm stronger than anybody else, or not because I'm more righteous than anybody else, why does he do this? Why does he choose to set his love upon a people? He says, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 
This is God's sovereign grace. Why does he do it? It's a question I was racking my mind. Is there, why does he choose to use Pharaoh to display his power to judge him when I am just as sinful as he is? Why does he not do that to me? Just left with the answer of God's sovereign grace. If anybody is to be saved from their sins at all, it requires God's sovereign grace. As Romans chapter 9 says, He has mercy on whom He has mercy on. He hardens those whom He chooses. And Pharaoh is one that He chooses to harden. What is it that we can do to earn salvation anyways? To make us think that salvation is of us. The Bible says that we are all spiritually dead in sins and transgressions, fully deserving of God's judgment. But instead of moving in power to judge us, he moves in power to save us. Why? John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. Ephesians 2 verse 4 says, Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5 says, In love He predestines us. In 1 Peter 1, 3 it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. It's all according to His love and His mercy and His grace and His steadfast love that we did not earn. We know this from Abraham. Abraham was a pagan man living in a pagan land, yet God drew near to him of all people. We know too that Abraham is the one who messed up in the promises, but yet God is the one who keeps His promises. You see, Abraham and Sarah trying to force God into fulfilling His promises, and they sin over and over and over again. But why does God not cast them off? It's because of His own sovereign grace and His love for them. But let's not be confused in salvation. God does not set aside his justice when he saves. He actually upholds it by judging our sins on the cross. Jesus Christ who bore our sins and the wrath that we deserve, he does so on the cross of Christ. So that everyone, everyone who believes on him will be saved. It's by his grace that we are saved, through faith, not because of anything we did to earn our salvation, but according to his sovereign grace alone. I love Ephesians chapter 2. It's been so so powerful in my own life there. Go ahead and turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. And you see here God's sovereign work, divine intervention alone that saves. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 10. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, that's dead. That's dead. There is no life in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. What are these passions? We were carrying out the desires of the body. We were carnal. And of the mind. So even our minds were messed up. And we were by nature children of wrath. We were supposed to inherit wrath like the rest of mankind. So... How do we go from there to being saved is the question. How do we become alive if we are dead in our trespasses and sins? It says there in 2.4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, that is sinners, that is those dead in their sins, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he makes us alive in Christ. 
By grace you have been saved. And he raises us with him and seats us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God created, created, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Divine intervention is what saves. That's what saves the Israelites. So in the gospel, we look here at like Jesus Christ taking on flesh, living a perfect life, dying on the cross, bearing the wrath and the sins that we had borne and the wrath that we deserve. And we see, we look over to Exodus chapter 14, 13, where Moses tells the people, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you. And we see that done in the gospel. See it. Don't do anything. You see it. If you only trust in him. So friends here, God gets the glory, not only in judgment, but we see also in the salvation of his people. This brings us to our next point. It's definitely shorter than the first point. (laughs) God gets the glory in saving his people. The exclamation mark of, of the Exodus is this beautiful, beautiful hymn in chapter 15. You have here in the beginning of Exodus... God is determined to make known to Pharaoh, to the Egyptians, to the Israelites, and to Moses himself that I am the Lord. I am. That's what Yahweh means. It means I am. And you know that, uh, that the name Yahweh is used by seeing in English capital L, ca- oh, sorry, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Lord, Yahweh, I am. And here in this song, you see here the people of Israel doing only what a helpless people can do a dependent people can do they sing praises to their sovereign powerful god who had just worked for them works of might to draw them out of egypt there's something to be said about this pattern god saves his people praise god saves his people praise you know if god programmed us to be robots that's usually the claim if god is sovereign then oh we must be robots no if god has programmed us to be robots Wouldn't it be more fitting for God to sing his own praises at this particular moment? Praise be to me at this point in time. Oh, I'm so great because, you know, I programmed everything and programmed the people to be robots. But here it is the company of the redeemed who genuinely offer up heartfelt praises to God. Full participation, 100% praise to God. This is a three stanza hymn that celebrates who God is and his mighty works that he has worked against those who oppose him. The first stanza goes from 1 to 6, verses 1 to 6, if you just go go ahead and look there. The second stanza is verses 7 to 11. And then the third stanza is verses 12 to 16. Then you got the conclusion in verses 17 to 18. And I'm just going to go ahead and read the whole entire thing because this is such a rousing account of praise, a hymn of praise. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying... I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. 
Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrown your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to be to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs seize the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed, trembling, seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are as still as a stone. Tell your people, O Lord, pass by. Tell your people, pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. See, the conclusion of every stanza is the cry, O Lord, O Yahweh, in verses 6, verses uh, 11 and 16. And here the whole entire congregation, the whole entire people of Israel, they stand on the other side of the sea, having escaped Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and now they all, by experience, no, the Lord is the great I am. It's a rousing conclusion here, given God was determined that everyone know that he is Yahweh, the God who keeps his covenant, the God who is with his people. This was such a defining moment for the people of Israel. Once again, they all sing to their covenant-keeping God. But in chapter 6, verse 2, it says that God says that he did not reveal himself to the patriarchs by the name Yahweh, meaning they did not know the fullest extent of, of the fact that the Lord is a covenant-keeping God who is with them and who fights for them. God said, they knew me as almighty. But here in Exodus, all of Israel now stand on the other side of the sea, having witnessed all of the ten plagues and God's miraculous works of opening and closing the sea and delivering his people. They now know that God is a God of deliverance. Chapter 6, verse 7 says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Friends, as we seek to apply this passage, this song even, to our lives, do you know that we stand in constancy, constancy with the people of Israel in this very praise to God? who works wonders and fights for his people. Do you notice that in the passage that Oscar read for us earlier in the book of Revelation 15, chapter 15, Moses' song is a song that the church sings into eternity. This song is a song that we sing into eternity. 
As one commentator wrote, the reason Moses' song is fitting for all redemptive history is because God has triumphed gloriously over all his enemies, not only Pharaoh and his armies, but Satan and his more terrifying weapons, including death itself. Indeed, Exodus chapter 15, 18, the Lord will reign forever and ever is the note of praise for God's people throughout all ages. As Revelation eleven fifteen says, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Friends, through Christ on the cross, God has triumphed over sin and Satan. And in sending Christ to do so, to die on the cross for sins, he tells everyone, stand and see the salvation God will work for you. If you would only trust and believe. Thinking about the humility that's represented here in the people of Israel, you know, we too ought to think about humility in the face of God's sovereign and saving grace. You know, one way that we as a church seek to aim to cultivate this humility is by keeping the mighty works of God right in front of our eyes, especially here on Sunday morning. You see that, that that's, that's what uh, Moses is singing about in all of Israel. The mighty works of God right in front of their eyes as they witness the power of God. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. One way we seek to do this is how we select the songs that we sing and how we order the whole entire service. So when it comes to the songs, right, we aim to sing Bible-based, God-glorifying songs that testify to the saving power of God. And we aim to move you logically through the biblical content of the songs, not merely by the beats. I mean, how many of you are like me in that we find ourselves sort of bumping our heads and even wanting to clap with the rhythm, even though the contents of a song might fly in the face of the character of God? And I know this from my own personal experience, listening to rap songs, claiming to be a Christian. Rejoicing in the beats, even while the lyrics themselves, they fly in the face of God. So, you know, here we want to move you by the biblical content of the songs and in the whole entire service. So here, you know, we have the, we have the content driving. So if you just turn to page one in your bulletin there, you can see that this is content driven here. We have the call to worship. And the reason why we start with the call to worship is because in the beginning, God spoke and things come into existence. So we begin our services with God speaking his word. And his people responding in worship. And then look how look at the first two songs there, right? We praised our great and powerful God. How great is our God. He is glorious and mighty. And then we move towards the scripture reading in Revelation 15. Well, what is this song that we sing into eternity? The church sings that the Lord reigns forever and ever. All praise and glory and honor and power go to him alone. The song of Moses and the song of the Lamb are sung there. And then we move to the prayer of praise there, which I was encouraged as Oscar is helping us praise God from the very passages that we read. And then we move closer and closer to the gospel, right? Moving closer and closer to the sermon. We have immovable, our hope remains fixed on the work of Jesus Christ, how he sustains us too. And then we proclaim all we have is Christ because our hope is finally in Jesus Christ. And this leads us to the exposition of God's word where the gospel ought to be preached from every passage of Scripture, including the Old Testament. And hopefully through this sermon, we have come to know a little bit more of God's character, a little bit more of the beauty of the gospel and God's grace as he's given it to sinners. And then you see there the closing hymn we have, In Christ Alone, 
Well, it is in Christ alone. Him coming to die on the cross for us. And we boast in the cross. That and that alone is the greatest work. The only work of salvation. And then we have a doxology, a benediction. Which today will be praising Jesus Christ. This glorious praise we get to offer this glorious praise that Israel gets to offer, we get to offer every single Lord's Day. And every single Lord's Day, we tell each other again and again and again, over and over again, that the Lord reigns. And He has become our salvation. Friends, God gets glory in judgment and in salvation over Pharaoh and in His people. Why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? The Bible says it was to perform miraculous signs in Egypt. Why does God perform the miraculous signs of Egypt? If you flip over there, look at chapter 10, verse 2. Look over at chapter 10, verse 2. We're asking the question, why did he perform these miraculous signs? Because he wanted his people to be a witness. To witness to the fact that he alone is Lord. Look at there. That you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. And so God gets the glory. The story that Moses and the people were to witness to, I imagine told of God's grace to the people of Israel, their very forefathers of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, how God drew near to Abraham by his grace. I told of, of the story of how God in his grace and mercy always keeps his promises, even despite all of his people's sins. It told of how the people were preserved by grace and brought down to Egypt for protection and then brought out of Egypt as God is working right here. It told of how God promised he fulfilled his promise to multiply his people in the land of Egypt. All by the mighty hand of God and then to deliver them to their own land. And so all of Israel became witnesses that God works salvation. And in God's plan, the witnessing was to redound to his glory again and again. As more people hear the truth that there is none like God and they come to believe. This is exactly what happens with Moses. If you look over at chapter 18 here, chapter 18. Moses goes to his pagan father-in-law and tells him there in verse 8. Moses tells him all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship that had come upon them in every way and how the Lord had delivered them. And you know what he says there? You know what Jethro says, his pagan father-in-law? He rejoices in verse 9. In verse 10, Jethro says, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know. That the Lord is greater than all gods. Because this, because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. And in verse 12, he responds and sacrifices to God. So if you're asking the question, why does God harden Pharaoh's heart? It is to work miracles. Why does God work miracles? It's so that his people would testify. Why does people testify? It's so that they would be, so that other people would be saved. Pagans would be saved. Friends, we too have a song that speaks about how God's grace finds us when we were hostile to God. 
and when we were following after the course of sin, and how in God's grace he sent his son to take on flesh, and to be the lamb who takes away the sins of the world as only he could do, as being the only perfect righteous one. And on the cross he bore our sin, and he bears the wrath that we deserve, so that we could be reconciled to God, forgiven of our sin, and escape the very judgment of God. As God says through Isaiah chapter 53, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. If you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, this passage we looked at today serves as a call on your own life to turn to the one and only true God. This passage calls you and invites you to be like Jethro, not Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, who upon hearing the works of the only sovereign God, his mighty deeds to judge and to deliver, he rejoices and worships. This is God's intention to bring other people to know him through the witnessing to, of the truths of salvation in the gospel. And he, God uses Pharaoh to do that. Friends, turn from your sin and believe on him. And you will be saved and know that God works salvation for you if you turn and believe. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that your great work of salvation, the mightiest deed you have ever done to man, is to send your son to die on the cross in the three days, three days later, to be raised from the dead. And we have your word here that speaks of this, so all of us can see the salvation that you work for the repentant. Father, we pray that you would work in us a humility, just as you did for the Israelites, to proclaim your mighty deeds and to profess that you are God alone. Lord, we know that in the face of our own idolatries, as we ourselves as Christians sin and are tempted to worship other things, Lord, we know that there are no gods besides you. Lord, we thank you too that you have brought us to our own extremities and our own end to see that there is no other God but you. As all things fail, sex fails, pleasure fails, our money fails us even now, our health fails us even now, our families sin against us. But Lord, we thank you that you are a good and sovereign God who is always faithful, steadfast in your love, fulfilling everything that you promised, being gracious to a thousand generations of those who love you. And we thank you too, Lord, that you are faithful to your own character of righteousness and justice. As we see, Lord, that your justice is not laid aside, but it is fulfilled in the cross of Jesus Christ, where our sins are done, are dealt with. And they meet its end, Lord. That is a mystery. How you say according to your word that you leave no guilt unpunished, but yet you lay our guilt upon your son. 
and shed his blood freely. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that it says in your word that you joyfully went to the cross. For the joy set before you, you endured the cross. Lord, we thank you for your power to deliver us from our sins and Satan and reconcile us to you. In your name we pray. Amen.